I ask, if you will, now to turn to the 78th Psalm. I mentioned to you last week that there would be one more interruption in Luke's gospel because there was something pastoral upon my heart that I have desired for quite some time to bring to us, and will do so, Lord willing, this morning. Psalm 78, the first eight verses. Now, we will be turning to many passages this morning. Uh, one of those times in which I rarely deal with something topically, but because of this pastoral matter in my heart, this will tend in that direction, but always anchored, of course, in Holy Scripture. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray now for the strange, the wondrous, the incomprehensible, the almighty power of the Holy Spirit to be at work in our hearts and in our lives. Whatever that may mean, uh, granting us great encouragement, granting to us a uh, deepened faith, uh, a longing for the courts of heaven, uh, giving to us the great grace of repentance, or Heavenly Father, perhaps someone here for the first time coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their lives. May this word this morning be used in thy almighty, powerful, wondrous, loving, merciful hand for blessing upon this church now and for generations to come or until Jesus comes again is our prayer for every sermon, but for this particular sermon we ask in a very particular way thy rich blessing. Through Christ our Lord, we ask it. Amen. Standing together with your copy of God's Word, Psalm 78, the first eight verses. This is the Word of God. A mascal of Asaph, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, on Sunday morning, April 8th, 1990, I preach this sermon, essentially. There are some deletions, there are some additions. 
this sermon on family piety and family worship, and the Lord blessed it in our congregation at that time. My convictions, my biblical convictions about family piety and worship are the same as then, even stronger than they were then, and I pray that the Lord will use this attempt today as well so that we have a trajectory that is set for our families and family worship and for godliness for future generations. This is so essential and important. Recently, I said to us that our church will only be as holy as as our, our families are. And that means the success and prosperity of our ministry together largely depends upon personal and family piety. Now, if you are here today and you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we always hold Jesus Christ out to you as the Savior of sinners. You also are responsible for family piety and for personal piety, but you cannot do it apart from Christ, and we call you to faith in Christ. If you have no spouse or children, what I preach can largely be applied to your personal time with God, and you can pray with and for families and influence others for good because you are a part of this church family, and so it applies to us all. But now let's get to the text, the opening text, and the first point is, lest they forget, Psalm 78, lest they forget. This psalm recaps the history of Israel so that the generations of the people of God will not forget from whence they came. The praiseworthy deeds of God are recounted so that trust in the God of the covenant, the God of promise, will be taught in the future. God's truth is unchanging from generation to generation. As we read in Psalm 111, verse 4, he hath made his wonderful works to be remembered. Now, the doctrine that we derive from the passage that we read together, the teaching we derive from it, is simply this. If we do not teach our children, future generations will be largely godless. Put it another way, if we do not teach our children, our future generations may go to hell. Now you say, Pastor, we believe in the sovereignty of God and His electing grace. Absolutely. We we do not hide that. We preach that. It's precious doctrine. We also believe the Bible teaches human responsibility. And God uses means to bring about that which he has purposed and which he has planned. And so these things must always be held together. And we will not minimize human responsibility in this sermon this morning. When we look at these verses in Psalm 78, let me simply recap some things with you. In verse 2, we are told that these things are weighty. In verse 3, that these things that need to be passed down are true. Also, that these things are to be transmitted to our posterity and must not be hidden from our children, verses 3 and 4, and the covenant that God is a God to us and to our children after us is reinforced in verse 4 particularly. We will not hide them from their children, but tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders He has done. Now, this is a very interesting verse because you will notice that our children are called their children. Now, why? The reason is because each generation is in the care of the preceding generation. The generation that is now coming up is in your care, and indeed future generations will be affected by the way in which we teach this present generation. 
And so we are called to think of the generations to come. As Matthew Henry put it, in teaching our children the knowledge of God, we repay to our parents some of that debt we owe to them for teaching us. Nay, if we have no children of our own, we must declare the things of God to their children and the children of others. In verse 5, he says we must teach them the word of God. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children. We must teach them to pass these things to their children, we read in verses 6 and 7. And we must teach them the providences of God and his mercy, according to verse 7. There's something else we must teach our children. According to verse 8, we must also bring to our children a warning. Verse 8, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. We must give the warning to our children as well as all of these other things that we have read in this psalm, that one can be a part of the professing people of God without knowing God for, for themselves. Israel was not steadfast. And as you continue to read in the psalm, much of what follows, they forgot the miracles of God. They murmured. They were insincere in repentance, ungrateful for the exodus and for the promised land. But at the end of this psalm, in verses 65 to 72, we see a very, very hopeful turn. Then the Lord awoke us from sleep like a strong man shouting because of wine, and he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes. He brought them to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand, all of which ultimately points to the greater than David, the Lord Jesus Christ, the shepherd of his sheep. In essence, at the end of this psalm, God says, my electing purpose will stand, I will save my people. And so you see, God uses the means of family piety and family worship to pass on the truth and the gospel and to save sinners in the covenant line. This is what God has ordained. And that is what baptizing our children is all about. He is a God to us and to our children after us. So that's first, lest they forget. The second thing that I want you to see with me are other select scriptures that deal with family piety. So let's begin by turning to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. And just one verse. Verse 19. In Genesis 18, verse 19, we read, this is God speaking of Abraham, for I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Or as another translation puts it, something like, I know Abraham that he will command and teach his children. And so God lets Abraham 
in on what he is about to do to Sodom because Abraham is God's friend by grace and God speaks of the confidence he has in Abraham that he will pass on this knowledge and what he sees to his children. And he taught and commanded his children and he oppressed upon them the truth and he looked toward his posterity. As one of the old writers put it, those who expect family blessings must make conscience of family duty. If our children be the Lord's, they must be nursed for him. Another passage, Exodus chapter 12, if you will turn there, Exodus chapter 12. This, of course, is the institution of the Passover, and in Exodus 12, 24 through 27, we read, Exodus 12, 24, you shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. And so at the time of the Passover, the Lord so has children in his heart that he makes plain the duty of teaching children about the meaning of the redemption from Egypt. How much more do we have that calling since we are redeemed by our Lord Jesus Christ and the exodus that is far greater has taken place? How good to see family in which the children are encouraged to be inquisitive What mean you by this service? And parents encourage this and speak with their children tenderly and teach them about redemption through Christ's blood, that to which the Passover pointed. But let's move on. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. And in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 9 through 10, we read... Before the people of God enter the land and Moses commands them, verses 9 and 10 of Deuteronomy 4, only take care and keep your soul diligently lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. And so God is stressing that God's past dealings with his people must be taught to the children to dissuade them from idolatry. We're turning over a chapter or so to chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, verses 6 through 9. This is after the great Shema. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So not only are set times of instruction needed and required, how else can these things be passed on without set times of instruction? But all through the day, in every setting, from morning until bedtime, we teach our children And this means also 
that we set an example of godliness before our children. What hypocrisy to teach them the gospel in words and deny the gospel in daily life. Now, I want my life to be a transcript of the sermons I preach, which is true of Jeff and true of Adam. But we should all seek that our lives are transcripts of the gospel, especially for our children to read. And on verse 6 in this passage, you shall write them as on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Old Matthew Henry says, he that loves God loves his Bible. Yes, indeed, that's true. Proverbs 7, 1 through 3. My son, keep my words and lay up my commandments with thee. Keep my commandments and live, and my law as the apple of thine eye. Bind them upon thy fingers and write them upon the table of thine heart. But let's go to another passage, Joshua chapter 24. Joshua 24. This is the passage that deals at Shechem with covenant renewal. Joshua 24, especially verses 14 and 15. Joshua 24, 14. Now therefore, Joshua 24, 14. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers, your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So Joshua calls upon Israel to fear the Lord, and is that not what we want for our children, that we have children that reverence God? Put away your false gods and serve God. And that word serve could also be translated worship. He is calling upon them to worship God. And it's a cut and dried either or. I will serve God. My house will serve God. Choose you this day whom you will serve. You cannot sit on the fence. One of the old writers said, if you cannot reform the land, you can reform your house. I wonder if you thought about the fact that if enough homes are reformed, the nation will be reformed by child after child knowing the Lord just by the means of grace being believed. Now, in the New Testament, we have other passages. Let me quote one, Ephesians 6, 4. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Let's all turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and there we read verses 14 and 15. 2 Timothy three fourteen and 15. Paul, writing his young protege, Timothy, says in 2 Timothy three fourteen and 15, but as for you, this is verse 14 of chapter 3, but as for you, continue in what you have learned And have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Now turn to chapter 1 for a moment. Verse 5. From whom did Timothy learn it? Chapter 1, verse 5. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first when your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And now I am sure dwells in you as well. So turn back to chapter 3. He learned it from his grandmother and his mother. And verse 15 and how from childhood 
you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Matthew Henry on a sermon on family religion said, it is better to be without bread in your houses than without Bibles. But what will it avail you to have Bibles in your houses if you do not use them? Well, Lois and Eunice used the Bible and taught it to Timothy. And it was a seed that brought about conversion later. So you see, the call to family piety and family worship, not as a substitute for public worship, which is first and indispensable, but the call to teach our children in all that we do and at deliberately set times is very clear. And it also requires set times to accomplish this, and so I encourage you to think upon it. And I hope you're convinced that by good and necessary consequence as well, the scriptures call upon us to do this and to have family worship. So, can you not see from these passages that we are called upon to have family worship? Isn't it clear that each of us fathers, each of us heads of households, are called upon to grow our family in family piety, to live godly lives, but also to gather our families and children and to teach them the things of God deliberately at set times as well as throughout the day. So the third point of this sermon is suggestions on having family worship. I'm going to give you some suggestions. And the first thing that I think is extraordinarily important is that before you can have worship or lead family worship, you must prepare your own heart. Your own heart in prayer with God in family worship, it will show whether you have been alone with God. So prepare your own heart. But family worship is not complicated. Here's what you do. You read a chapter of the Bible, you point out some truth to meditate upon, you pray, and you sing. I also encourage you strongly to add the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The Catechism helps us to see that the Bible contains a system of doctrine and helps us to see clearly as we grow in our knowledge of the Bible that these various doctrines relate and how they connect in a systematic way. I remember Sinclair Ferguson saying that the average child in Calvin's Geneva knew more theology than most seminary grads today because they learned the Geneva Catechism. And had I time, I would go to B.B. Warfield and some other sources about the Catechism. But this can be done at another time as well. And some of the old writers actually encourage mothers throughout the day to be teaching the catechism to their children. And I think that's a good thing. Jake Russell Machen, of whom we will hear next Sunday night, his mother taught him catechism on Sundays. And by the age of 10, he knew the Westminster Shorter Catechism and could recite it. And he also knew all the kings of Israel and all because of his mother teaching him. But when you have family worship, let each child, as he becomes able, read a portion of the Bible, welcome your child's interest, insights, questions, and comments. Do not be long in your family worship. It can get longer as the children grow and mature. It's not the length. It's actually being obedient and being faithful that matters. Having set times for family worship, this must be inviolate. Consistency is the key to success in family worship. And so you as a family must find the time that works best for you. For most families, right there at the supper table before anybody gets up is the best time for family worship. 
For others, that doesn't work. Perhaps early morning, you need to figure it out. But fathers, heads of households, lovingly lead your children because they need it, they must have it, and because this is your calling from God. You know, have them set up. This is not a time for slouching. This is worship of the living and true God. We're meeting with the Lord. Show them that this is important, that it's essential, that you mean business, but at the same time, be, be tender because you're reflecting the fatherly character of God to your children when you lead them in your family worship. If dad must be absent, then mom, you take over. If there is no husband in the household and you are the head of your family, then you lead family worship. And I also want to encourage you to teach hymns and psalms to your children and not kitty songs. We're trying to mature them and familiarize them with the psalms and the great hymns of the faith at the earliest age. Let them grow in this atmosphere, even when they cannot understand a word. You say, well, my child doesn't like it. Well, do you like it? If you love these things, if you love the Psalms and the great hymns of the faith, they will learn to, because our children will largely love what we teach them to love. And our children will be let down hard by choruses and ditties when they could be learning their theology from the Psalter or a sound hymn book and be prepared for life and for joyful and for hard times? His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. Don't you want your child to know those words and to know them for life? And as for singing, turn with me to Psalm 118, verse 15. Psalm 118, verse 15, we sang this psalm this morning. Psalm 118, verse 15. This was our opening hymn this morning. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. You know what that means? It means that godly families sing in their homes. That's what that means. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. You say, well, I can't sing. Yes, you can. It may not sound good, but do it anyway. <laughs> That's what matters, that the children see dad leading them, whether he can sing or not. Some of you sing very well, but that doesn't matter. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Now, I'll give you the personal recommendation, you can take it or leave it, of getting the Reformation Heritage Study Bible. It only comes in the King James It has the best notes of any that I know, but at the end of every chapter, there are thoughts for private and family worship that any father could use. So you could actually read the text in the morning in your your personal worship. You could read the, the notes, and you would be well prepared to lead from those thoughts on family worship in the evening. You can also just get those thoughts for family worship in a separate volume, but you don't have the notes. But the point is, we don't lack resources. We don't lack resources. What we tend to lack is resolve. So, how do I have family worship? Read, pray, sing. Read, pray, sing. Reinforce it by all of your life and all that happens during the day. But when you come together, it's not difficult. You read, pray, sing, and you do it every day.
Now, Joel Beakey, fine, fine Dutch Reformed theologian and pastor, Joel Beakey tells of a very special treat, and I want to recommend this to you. His father, they came from a a very uh, experientially Calvinistic Dutch Reformed home, and his father was very careful about family worship, but on Sunday nights, there was a real treat, and he would take the Pilgrim's Progress, and he would read to his children the Pilgrim's Progress. And when they would finish, he would start it again and again and again. I don't know how many times they went through it. But Dr. Beakey said, I remember my father with tears running down his face, telling us of the ways of the Holy Spirit in bringing a sinner to conversion and leading a Christian to heaven. Early impressions are extraordinarily important for our children. Fourth point in the sermon, objections answered. Or shall I say excuses answered? Someone says, well, we bring them to Sunday school. Well, some of you don't do that. Why not? It could really strengthen what you're trying to teach in the home. Or perhaps you are not teaching in the home and it can strengthen it because you're going to begin to teach in the home in a very deliberate way after this sermon. But even though you do bring your children to Sunday school... This is no substitute for family worship and the texts that we have seen together that relate to how the dad, the father, is to lead his family in worship. Well, let's set that one aside. Another one says, the children might ask questions that I cannot answer. I will guarantee you they will ask questions that you cannot answer. And that's a good thing. Help them to think. And if you have the Reformation Heritage Study Bible with its notes or some other uh, some other help, some other good commentary, you can, you can say, you know, I don't know. I'll research it and I'll get back with you. And you can't find it, you go to your elder, or perhaps you come to your minister. Maybe none of us knows, and we all have to research it because our children ask such good questions. There's no shame in saying, I'll get back with you, son or daughter. Research it. A third objection, I don't have time. That's the one I hear the most, I don't have time. Very rarely does such an excuse hold water. Say you're, maybe you're a nurse, you're not married, you're only home three nights a week, things are really tough, then have family worship three nights a week rather than every night because you're not there. But most of us have time. You see, God has given us in a day the time that he wants us to use for his glory He's the author of time, the creator of time. It's simply in how we slice the pie. So maybe you're watching television, and maybe you need to throw it in the pit because it's not making you a godly man anyway. Maybe you need to develop a taste for the things of God so that you'd rather be in God's Word and with your children, leading them in worship. Maybe you need to help your children learn how to make choices because they've chosen all these different activities to be in and you're constantly on the go with them and in the road with them and you have no family time. Well, you need to teach your children. They have one thing they can choose. And we are going to be home in the evenings most of the time. There's something very wrong when we do not have family time. You do have the time. It's all in how you slice the pie. So may God help you to develop a taste for the things of God and your family's good and eternal welfare, which is more important than any of those things that take you away from your family. 
Another person says, well, I just don't know how. You do, you do. You read, pray, sing. You read the Bible, you pray, and you sing. You do know how. But if you say, I'm still just not comfortable with it, then I will offer your ruling elder come to your home. They don't know I'm doing this, but I am. (laughs) I will offer, years ago I said, I offer myself to come, and some people took me up on it. This time I'm offering your ruling elder. (laughs) I offer your ruling elder to come to your home and lead it for the first time. Or perhaps he'll bring you to his home and you can participate in his family worship. So you do know how. Another one says, I don't want to prejudice the minds of my children. Well, surely no one thinks in this pagan way here in our congregation. We do believe in original sin. Our children are not born blank slates. They're born dead in trespasses and sins, and they're prejudiced immediately against God and the gospel. And our constant prayer should be for the Holy Spirit's saving work in their lives. And the scriptures we have seen today teach us to constantly expose our children to the gospel. And so another person says, well, we don't have children in the home. It's just my wife and I. Well, lead your wife in family worship. You're a family. Lead your wife in family worship. How dare we husbands not read our Bibles with our wives and pray with them? How dare we do that when Ephesians 5 says that we are given to our wives. Yes, our wives are given to us in God's grace, but we are given to them to nourish them for heaven. That's what Ephesians 5 teaches. God has given you to your wife as a husband to nourish her to heaven so that without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, she comes before the Lord in that day. So if you're not reading, praying with your wife, singing, then begin it today. Fifthly, I want to give some applications, some pointed applications. The first thing is I want you to realize that it's pagan families, according to the Bible, that are under God's wrath that do not and cannot develop family piety. And I have Jeremiah 10.25, much more clear in the AV, that says, God pours fury upon families that call not on thy name. That's a very serious thing indeed, and we call you to faith in Christ. But the next application is simply that the chief responsibility to lead our families in worship belongs to the fathers or heads of households when there is no father. And so repent if you are not doing this, and begin today. I also want to underscore that never missing public and private worship teaches proper priorities to our children. All of this is connected. Public worship, my private worship, family worship, it's all connected. For example, you say to your children, I'm sorry, your team has a game of soccer on Sunday. We, that's the Lord's Day. And I'll never cave on it. That's, that's a special day set aside for worship. We don't do that on the Lord's Day. It's a special day. And you see, when you're having your family worship and leading your family in this way, teenagers in particular will begin to learn how to lead their families by the way you lead them. Malachi 2.15 says, God is seeking a godly seed. 
and you're having children, God says he is seeking a godly seed for the church and for the nation. And so let your children see that you feel the weight of and that you delight in eternal things. For example, when you go home from worship and you sit at the dinner table, what do you talk about? I've heard on more than one occasion of of fathers who leave a worship service where heaven and hell have been dealt with. And And they go and they begin to whistle a happy tune or they begin to talk about the ball game and the whole impression of the seriousness of the service is taken away because immediately you've gotten back into the grunge of this world. The Puritans call the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath, the market day of the soul. What do you do when you go to market? You stock up, right? What is this day for? It is for worshiping God and hearing his word and stocking up for the week to come, for the days ahead. Again, Matthew Henry, consider what your children are made for for service in their generation and for eternity. So are we bringing up our children, and only God's grace can accomplish it, we know, but you may well be the means he uses. Are we bringing up our children for service in their generation and for eternity? I think it's also important in these applications that I stress you must hear the Bible first for yourselves. But we're very unwise if we do not also hear the voice of our fathers on this matter. And family worship has always been a very, very, very important calling in the Reformed churches. And had we time, we would look at Jonathan Edwards and Samuel Miller and Robert Murray McShane and R.L. Dabney, but I can only give you some quick samples of our fathers Let me give you one right now. Thomas Manton, who wrote a very well-known epistle to the reader before the Westminster Confession. In other words, it's an epistle introducing the confession of faith. And this is one of the things he says. Families are societies that must be sanctified to God as well as churches. And the governors of them have as truly a charge of the souls that are therein as pastors have of the churches. But alas, how little is this considered or regarded? But while negligent ministers are deservedly cast out of their places, the negligent masters of families take themselves to be almost blameless. They offer their children to God in baptism, and there they promise to teach them the doctrine of the gospel and to bring them up in the nurture of the Lord, but they easily promise and easily break it and educate their children for the world and the flesh although they have renounced these and dedicated them to God. This covenant breaking with God and betraying the souls of their children to the devil must lie heavy on them here or hereafter. They beget children and keep families merely for the world and the flesh, but little consider what a charge is committed to them and what it is to bring up a child for God and govern a family as a sanctified society. Thomas Manton, member of the Westminster assembly. So you see, you can bring up your child, you can teach him all kinds of things, you can teach him to fish, you can teach him to golf, you can teach him even how to, how to have a job that's going to provide food on the table, 
But what does it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lose his own soul? Right? The General Assembly of the Scottish Presbyterian Church, 1647, appended to the confession of faith the directions on family worship. And it said that a father that did not do this should be admonished by the session and if he persisted, debarred from the Lord's table. That's the old Presbyterianism. Robert Louis Dabney points to the text in Malachi and Luke that the Messiah comes to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And he asks, How can you, O Christian, fail to bring your child to the great physician of souls to be healed of the deadly contagion you have conveyed to him? And then he points out this truth, and I can attest to it. Pastors know that there are very few cases of conversion among grown men who have been children of hypocritical or nominal Christian homes. Almost no one who grows up in a hypocritical, nominal Christian home comes to faith in Christ later. Many instances of children wandering away and in old age coming to know him. And I wonder sometimes, train up a child in the way in which he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. I wonder if that's one of the implications, that often in old age, they remember these things that you have taught them in their childhood. And we pray for that. Samuel Davies, do you ladies remember when I had the opportunity to speak at the Women in the Church Tea about this great Presbyterian minister during the Great Awakening, Samuel Davies? He preached a sermon, The Necessity and Excellence of Family Religion, it's Sermon 29 in the old set that I have. But here was the text that he used. The text was 1 Timothy 5.8, If any provide not for his own, he is worse than an infidel. Well, we say, if he doesn't provide materially, he's worse than an infidel. Davy said, oh, no, 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 no. It's not just that he provides food on the table. He provides for the spiritual nourishment of his children and his family. I'm sure you can find that sermon online, probably. Now, we have several possible cases here this morning. We have someone who's listening and you're filled with sorrow because you say, I did not do this with my children. And what I want to say to you, I want to bring the balm of Gilead to you. If indeed your heart says, oh, how I wish I had, and I want to honor the Lord. Colossians 2.23, and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses. And so receive his forgiveness. Take his forgiveness And then help others and pray for family piety in this church with all of your soul. Or we have someone who says, you know, Pastor, we've settled this long ago. We do this every day. Wonderful. Let me encourage you with all my might to keep it up and to help others and don't stop. Perhaps there's someone else who started well, but it's fits and starts, fits and starts, and you've just not continued Well, this is the day calling you to repentance. Perhaps there is someone who until now has not even thought upon it, but you're convinced that this must be done to honor God. I encourage you with all my soul to begin today. That's what repentance is. Do it even when it feels awkward for a while. Do it even though you don't feel equipped to do it. You have a Bible. 
You have a voice, you have a heart, you have God's people around you, you have desire, and you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to aid you. You can do this. You really can. And someone is here today who hears and knows, and he still will not do it. And I simply ask you, what does this show about your spiritual condition? So let me close with this. The bottom line is, do we love the Lord and do we love the souls of our children? And remember, the sovereign God uses means, and we never pit the sovereignty of God over against our responsibility. These things go together in the mystery of God's revelation. So Robert Murray McShane said this, Dear believers, be wise. Surely if anything could mar the joy of heaven, it would be to see your children lost through your neglect. On the level of human responsibility. And then he says, dear unconverted souls, if one pang can be more bitter than another in hell, it will be to hear your children say, father, mother, you brought me here. Now in 1990, that's where I ended the sermon. Not today. Because I want you to imagine something else. You're about to enter heaven. And your children are around you. And they look at you and they say, Father, Mother, God saved me by grace alone. But he used you mightily as the instrument. Thank you for pointing me to Jesus Christ. Thank you for never missing public or private or family worship, even though it was hard. Thank you for putting heart and soul into Sabbath observance. Thank you that every day you told and showed me Jesus Christ, and every day we had family worship, and we read the scriptures, and we prayed, and we sang. Under God, mom and dad, under God, thank you for bringing me here. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.